0: Welcome to Race in the Workplace, a limited series brought to you by the Voices of Energy podcast. This series highlights the best conversations from our engagements with black energy professionals and leaders on topics around racism in this country and more specifically energy organizations. We've compiled and categorized their insights to serve as a guide for you to implement change in your workplace. I'm Katie Maynard. Founder and CEO of Ally Energy. Today, I'm joined by Rhonda Morris and Adam Bryant, co creators of the popular LinkedIn newsletter, Leading in the B Suite, where they talk about race in corporate America and how to increase the ranks of Black executives in the C Suite. Rhonda Morris is the vice president and chief human resources officer for Chevron Corporation and has led the company's HR health and medical, and diversity and inclusion groups since 2016. She also serves on the company's executive committee. Prior to that, Morris held a number of roles increasing responsibility in HR, global marketing, and international products. She received the Industry Leader Award for the Professional Business Women in California, recognizing her work to advance gender equality in the workplace, and she serves on the boards of TechBridge and the East Bay Agency for Children. She joined Chevron's Human Resources Department Development Program rather in 1991, and she earned a bachelor's degree from the University of California, Davis, and a master's degree in business administration from Boston University. Welcome, Rhonda. Thank you, Katie. Adam Bryant joined Merrick & Company, an executive mentoring firm as managing director in 2017 after a 30-year Career in journalism, including 18 years at the New York Times. In addition to his many roles there as reporter and editor, he created the Weekly Corner Office column in 2009 and interviewed 525 CEOs and other leaders over a decade. He's written three books based on the themes that emerge from those interviews, including his latest, The CEO Test Mastering the Challenges That Make or Break All Leaders published by Harvard Business Review Press. Since joining, he has started a popular interview series on LinkedIn with board directors, CEOs, and CHROs, and he writes a monthly column on leadership for Strategy and Business Magazine. He's also a senior advisor to the Ruben Mark Initiative for Organizational Character and Leadership at Columbia University. Welcome, Adam.
1: Hey, Katie, thanks for the invite.
0: Absolutely. So it's so exciting to have the two of you I've been stalking you on LinkedIn and really excited to read more about what you've been talking about around leading in the B-suite. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what leading in the B-suite is and what you hope to achieve?
1: Sure. I'll, I'll start us off. We started the series last fall. Uh, obviously, the name is a play on leading in the C-suite, but the point is that we want to interview prominent Black leaders from all walks of life. And there's a few guiding principles and kind of overarching goals that we've had. One is this notion, at the risk of stating the obvious, that conversations about race in America, in corporate America, are and have always been pretty uncomfortable. But they're conversations that I think everybody recognizes we need to have. So we're having them. I mean, not every question in the interview is about race, but a big part of it is. And and really trying to ultimately kind of role model, like if this is how to have the conversations. And I think we've come up with some pretty productive framings for some of the questions that we ask. The other big goal that we have is this notion of the C-suite. So many companies have made pledges and commitments about standing with BLM and and wanting to do better and and writing checks. But it's our feeling that until we see greater representation of Black executives in the C-suite, there is going to be this gap between the walk and the talk. So we want to really shine a bright spotlight on the C-suite. Over to you, Rhonda.
2: So I would add, Katie, that I'm a big believer in the power of role models. And one of the other benefits of the series is the opportunity for us to showcase a number of Black executives that, quite frankly, a lot of people don't know exist. And I grew up reading magazines like Black Enterprise, Jet Magazine, Ebony, and Essence. And in those magazines, every year there would be profiles on Black executives who are doing amazing things. And those magazines don't exist in the same format that they had historically. And so one of my objectives is to try to recreate that so that younger people and even broader audience can see some of the amazing things that Black executives are doing in the U.S. and even around the world. Excellent. Obviously, social media plays a big role in that, given that
0: a younger audience is is leveraging social media. So let's talk about how did the two of you guys get paired up? I heard you started this column obviously and you did these 525 interviews but I'm curious how the two of you connected.
2: So Katie, I've been a fan of Adam's corner office column in the New York Times for quite a while and in 2019 After Adam left the New York Times and joined Merrick and he mentioned a number of the series that he does on LinkedIn and one of them is focused on heads of HR and Adam reached out to interview me for that series and. After the series, we continued conversations, we became friends, and we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about gender in the workplace. We talked about equity. We had discussions about racism. And this was even before the events of 2020 with George Floyd and and the other incidents. And we had a pretty comfortable rhythm of talking about the kind of awkward topics and uncomfortable subject matter. And so that started a discussion that we had after the George Floyd murder about, well, what can we do to keep this discussion about race front and center even after the news cycle ends? And the idea we came up with was the interview series leading in the B-suite and taking an opportunity to not just talk about leadership, but to keep the conversation about race active and talk about um, headwinds and tailwinds that a number of very successful leaders in the U.S. primarily have managed to successfully navigate. So, Adam, I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add to that.
1: I'll just add the fact that based on We've done about a dozen interviews so far that have been published. We probably have another 10 in the pipeline. One of the things that the executives have told us is that maybe a couple of years ago, they wouldn't have necessarily wanted to have these conversations. I think if you're a black CEO, you probably have too many interviews in which you're asked silly questions like, so what's it like to be a black CEO? And all the 20 things that are wrong with that question. But what has become clear is that, you know after the events of last year, people are ready to have this conversation. They wanna have this conversation. There's a, a sense that there is a bit of an inflection point. Some people are at different places on the pessimism-optimism scale about whether real change is going to last. But there is this sense of this moment and people want to share their thoughts. And there's just been so much wisdom and insights. And we've been really gratified to see that the, the feedback has been really strong. We've got more than 50,000 subscribers to the newsletter. And the sort of predictable critics have, for the most part, stayed on the sidelines.
0: Here at Ally, we really believe in the power of conversation and social conversation. And it, it takes a lot of good conversation and deep conversation to enable change and get people to think differently about these topics. So I applaud you both for having the courage to have these public conversations. And speaking of which, you know, you talked about having kind of several interviews under your belt, what are some of the reoccurring themes or maybe answers you get for the question around what headwinds and tailwinds have Black leaders had to face?
1: Sure. I'll I'll start things off. For me, as a white male, I will say that I always appreciated the fact that being Black in this country had a lot of challenges. And and we heard a lot of sort of confirmation of that, not surprisingly, just sort of the daily microaggressions. Looking beyond the, the obvious stuff, one of the insights and nuances that I've really come to appreciate is this idea that everybody you're interacting with, if you're Black, can come to you with a kind of different rubric or standard or framework in their head about what they think your success should be. Just the idea of that is frankly pretty exhausting and enervating. There's one story that an executive told us where early in her career working at a bank, she was part of this training program and this executive took her to the corporate dining room. And after an hour during the lunch, the executive said to her, you'll go far. And she said, you know, I appreciate that, but I'm curious why you say that. And he told her because you didn't salt your steak before you started eating it and you knew like which fork to use for the salad. And just sort of that kind of idea, it's like, that's the rubric you're putting on me. and." just to, to sort of have that every every day. And, and also just this notion of like, you're applying your test to me, but that's not my test. And I don't necessarily want or need to pass your test.
2: Well, and I would add, Katie, there are common experiences that a number of executives have. And a couple of examples I would share with you are being mistaken for not being either the head of the group or the leader of an organization if you are traveling with your team. Another person that we interviewed talked about uh, making wagers with his direct reports in sales meetings of the customer they were visiting would always talk to one of his white direct reports as, and assume that that individual was the boss and not him. Another example would be this common thread of having to be twice as good as to be considered equal. And these stories, they haven't been shared a lot. And what I find really fascinating about this series, and Adam and I have talked about this a lot, is there's this, there are all these common threads and stories that are painful. And they're painful, but no one knows they're painful because they're not really talked about a whole lot. And so what the series has allowed us to do is hopefully create some perspective by letting people share. And I, I found that most of the people, in fact, I would probably say all of the people that we've interviewed that are in a very reflective place right now, and they've been willing to share. And I think, I assume there would be some risk that over time this would kind of slow down or stop. But what we found is it hasn't. People want to tell their stories. They want to help and be part of the change in in the future.
0: Now, I'm so glad you, you said that last summer, as you all were going through, as really the world was going through a reflection period with what happened, it was awful. We started having conversations and many of our listeners here today have heard some of those conversations over the last few weeks in our series and we had some very raw discussions, some very emotional discussions. And so it's very important that we're doing this because it gets back to you can't change things unless we get people uh, talking about and having those, those crucial conversations. So in this series, you interview people from a wide variety of industries. Do you think that in energy in particular, we have different obstacles for Black leaders than in other industries?
2: Well, I would say I would say no. And I've been with Chevron 27 years. And I've been part of a number of associations that are unique to the in- energy industry. And then I'm part of a number of functional organizations where I talk to peers of mine, talk with and share best practices with peers of mine, heads of HR for a whole variety of industries. And The challenges, by and large, and I'll limit this to large multinational organizations, they are the same. The stories are the same. The challenges are the same. And our inability to crack the code and make a difference are exactly the same. And that's not good. It's not good, really, for any of us. That being said, with the energy industry, right now, we're part of a consortium of large energy companies working with API, the American Petroleum Institute, to really try to tackle as an industry, what can we do to advance equity and diversity within our respective companies? And this is the first time that we've actually tried to do that. And it gives me a little bit of hope, and it gives me, and I I think we we can make a difference. Rhonda, you wrote
0: A post last year announcing the launch of this series, and in it, you talk about your grandfather and how he worked in a segregated refinery and passed down the values of grit and an attraction to work in the oil industry. Now, you are the first Black female corporate officer in the 140-year history of Chevron. That's okay. You smile because you should smile. What does this achievement mean to you and how has this influenced your time uh, working on this series with Adam?
2: Well, thank you for acknowledging my grandfather. Unfortunately, I didn't have an opportunity to meet him. He passed away before I was born. So the, the grit and the hard work ethic really came through him through my father and, and my mother from both sides of, of my my family and my father always thought that working for an oil company was was a big deal. Uh, he was an auto mechanic, and it's very humbling, uh, to be honest with you. I'm the, the granddaughter of someone who cleaned tanks for Exxon. I'm the daughter of an auto mechanic and a teacher, and here I sit in this kind of lofty position in a C-suite role, and there are days that it's very sobering. I actually keep my grandfather's... Uh, my grandfather's work card on my desk and oh. I look at it every day as a as a reminder of where I came from. And I mentioned earlier that I think role models are important. And even though I didn't necessarily have black women in Chevron in who I could look at as role models for the majority of my career because they simply weren't here, it didn't mean they didn't exist and they existed in other companies. And I referenced looking and reading in periodicals like Essence and Ebony and Black Enterprise and Jet Magazine. And a number of these people were people that I reached out to, to ask advice. And without fail, they always responded back. So in some respects, the series is allowing me to have some role in doing that for someone else. That's why that opening post was called, If You Can See It, You Can Be It. And I would add that Part of the reason or one of the reasons I really liked Adam's Corner office interviews is he always interviewed a significant proportion of women and people of color. So in some respects, he replicated what I grew up reading and I always gravitated towards that. So it's uh, very fun and cool to be able to work on this with him, given the fact that I'm a fan of his work and I followed it for years.
1: And I'll just add, I mean, the, the power of collaboration. I mean, Rhonda and I bring a lot of different things to the table, but I cannot tell you how steep my learning curve has been just sort of developing a, a more nuanced understanding of some of the challenges around race in America. And, and I've learned a lot from the executives we've interviewed, and I've learned even more just from our conversations with Rhonda and just the get the, the popcorn popping between the two of us of different questions to ask and different approaches. And I, I think This is a one of those situations where one plus one can equal five.
2: Well, and Katie, I would I'll share a quick story of something that happened. Uh, It just happened yesterday, and it I always think you benefit from being a lifelong learner. Adam and I are doing are working on something else. It's Black History Month, so a lot of people have reached out now to us to do a couple of different things. And we were on a call yesterday for an event that's coming up in a couple weeks, and I realized a few days ago that on this panel we're doing that Adam's going to be the only white person on the panel. And so I sent him a note and said, hey, you're going to be the only white person on this panel. Are you okay with that? And he said, sure, I'll be fine. And so yesterday we had this sort of prep meeting and like everybody's dealing with, all the pictures come up on the screen. And I'm sitting there and Adam, you know, sends me a quick note. And he goes, hey, something's different here. And what was interesting is, and I said, you know, welcome to my world, because that's kind of what I deal with in pretty much every meeting I go to almost every day. But what was striking for me was I didn't notice it. Even though I had sent him the note a couple days before, I didn't notice it. And I thought this must be what it feels like for the men that I work with. It is a non-issue for them, just as seeing Adam on the screen and Adam being the only white person on the screen was a non-issue for me. And so that's part of the other beauty of what we're doing is create the creation of perspective. And I'm not saying that from a judgmental standpoint at all. It's just perspective is very, very powerful.
1: And I'll just add, I think one of the if I had to put a big word in, in red letters on a whiteboard around this discussion, it'd be the word empathy, because I think it's about understanding what the lived experience of others is like. Reminds me of a story that Ron Williams, the former CEO of Aetna told us when he was running that company, he would often bring members of his C-suite, white executives, to an annual golf tournament that was hosted by Black Enterprise and these executives were very much in the minority and it just sort of had the, the benefit of sensitizing them to what it's like to feel like an outsider. And I think the more all of us can put ourselves in situations where maybe we're, we are in the minority that will help increase that sense of empathy because ultimately we're all human beings and we have to look past the superficial things of the color of people's skin and recognize, again, we're kind of all in this together.
0: If I reflect on a post I sent out earlier this month to kick off this series, it's serendipitous we're having this conversation because my first assignment in a global oil and gas company in Shell was I was the female white leader and everyone was broad in different countries. And I was younger and I was a female. (laughs) And so it was interesting being the leader who had to get, you know, command respect of the team and doing that remotely, right. That gave me an appreciation for, Hey, I'm actually in the minority here. And if I wanna gain the respect of my colleagues, I'm gonna need to learn how to meet them where they are, learn more about them. And as you say, develop that sense of empathy. And I look back on that experience and wonder if that's shaped why I'm sitting here with both of you today. So, well, I wanna thank you both for the work you're doing. I think it's important. I think it's important that these conversations continue Any parting thoughts or other themes that have emerged from these conversations or what's coming forward for others that we can share?
1: I'll I'll mention a couple of quick ones that have jumped out at me. We've interviewed a few CEOs that are in the sort of tech or sciences space, and they made the very good point that, you know, in the world of tech, things are objective, right? Either things work or don't work. They're binary, they're bits and bytes. They made the very valid point that in that world, you sort of remove the subjectivity about what people think of your work, because either it works or not. And and so if you need another argument for going into STEM, I think that's one of them. Another key insight is a lot of them said, like, I took the harder path, like the, the tough assignment that nobody wanted. That's the one I took. Very often, they said, like, that's the way to get ahead. So those couple of things that resonated for me.
2: I'd probably say, Katie, three things. Number one, there's a a theme of parents and parents who built confidence that the person we're interviewing could do anything. And and along with that, a focus on education. The second I would mention is having a personal board of directors. And I find that it makes me smile when I hear them talk about that, because in the interview I had with Adam back in 2019, it was one of the things I talked about with him about, I'm a big advocate of having a personal board of directors. And I had one every time I changed jobs, I would think through what do I need and who can help me. And one of the nice things about Chevron, and I talk about this all the time here, is that I have never in my 27 years asked someone in this company for help and they have said no, it's always yes. And they'll typically stop what they're doing. And that's something that I think happens pretty much everywhere. If you ask someone to help you, more than likely they're going to do that. And the third and final one theme is we always ask a question about optimism versus pessimism because I mentioned earlier change hasn't happened in a long time and the question's really around is this moment in time different and where are you on the optimism versus pessimism scale that we will have sustainable change in the future and by and large pretty much every single leader we've interviewed is optimistic and I talked about hope a little bit earlier and that gives me hope as well.
0: Wow. Rhonda Morris, Adam Bryant, check out folks on LinkedIn, the Leading in the B Suite. Thank you so much for joining us on the Voices of Energy podcast. I love what you're doing. And here's to more conversations, more crucial conversations, and showing and leading the way.
1: Thank you, Katie.